you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come to you by your Spirit. We've come to worship you. We've come to declare how worthy you are. We've come to spend time with your people, lives that have been transformed, lives that have been touched by your grace, that have been infused with your Spirit. God, we've come to hear your word, and God, I pray that you would speak. God, I pray that as the mouth of your servant is open, God, I pray that your voice would be the voice that's heard. I pray that as your living and active word is read, of the word that's like a sword that can cut through bone and marrow and the thoughts and intentions of every heart, God, I, I pray that you would speak to us. God, we need to hear from you, Lord. We need you, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you would work. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisles right now with copies of the Bible. This is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible or it's just a loner, if you left yours at home, we encourage everyone to have a Bible and to follow along. Now today is an exciting day. Um, uh, Two new Harvest Church plants got off the ground today, which is always exciting. A new church in Romania, uh, which is really exciting. So God continues to uh, build the church that's happening there. God's doing a great work in that part of Europe and uh, using Harvest Bible Chapel as part of that. And also a brand new church in Haiti as well, which is really, really exciting. And so that's a number of churches, number of Harvest Churches being planted in, uh, in Haiti. And so you can be praying for, uh, for me as well. Um, at the end of next month, I'm actually going to be heading to Haiti with some other church leaders. And God just really seems to be moving there through harvest. And uh, we've been looking uh, and praying about finding a, a harvest church that we could kind of partner with. We could send missions trips and, and building teams, medical teams, teaching, training teams uh, to sort of help the church. If you want to look for a parallel to Nehemiah as far as uh, a, long, a long history and a context that needs to be understood and a need to to rebuild not just infrastructure, but also the people and the opposition uh, that is there. Very, very parallel to what uh, Nehemiah was facing. And so we're in this series called Never Give Up. And it's, it's centered on this life of this incredible person named Nehemiah. And last week we reviewed 500 years of uh, biblical uh, history just to sort of lay the groundwork for the first three verses of this of this book, and we, we, and each week as we go through this series, we're going to center in on a different reason why we should never give up. Last week it was never give up because God has a plan, and Nehemiah was able to recognize that. And, and today we're we're being called to never give up because God hears prayer, and we're going to uh, hear uh, a prayer given by Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter one, verses four to eleven. Follow along in your Bibles. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me... And keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, 
Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah never gave up on prayer. It says in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. As soon as he heard, his brother Hanani had just returned from the region of Judah and he had just given Nehemiah a report about how the city of Jerusalem is doing. And that's what verses 1 to 3 talk about. The temple is up, but no one is living in the city because it's not safe. The walls have been torn down. And Nehemiah responded by sitting down, weeping and mourning. Now, as we reviewed the history, the, the walls were torn down in 586 BC. This, this wasn't new news to Nehemiah. What was new news was that the walls were supposed to be rebuilt. But when Hanani came back and told Nehemiah, no, in fact, the, the rebuilding has stopped. We're actually in worse shape now than we were when we first returned. That news cut Nehemiah to the very core of his being. Here's Nehemiah living in Susa, receiving this news that that what seemed to be a happy ending to a sad story was just turning out to be another sad story. That the people of God were in great disgrace, that the walls were tumbling down. And Nehemiah, like many of us, would have been tempted in that moment to just give up. To just say, you know what, it's just too hard. It seemed like God was working. He did call some of his people back to the promised land. But listen, if we can't rebuild the wall, it's hopeless. It's pointless. But Nehemiah never gave up. And he never gave up because he believed that God heard prayer. And so this is how he responded. Yes, he cried. Yes, he wept. Yes, he mourned. But he also prayed. It says, I continued fasting and praying. He never gave up. He never gave up fasting and praying. You know, there's lots of things that are happening in our church. You heard Hamel announce a bunch of them today. They're in the reverse side of your handout. Different things that our church is involved in. Youth ministry and men's ministry and small group Bible studies and courses on financial stewardship and and Sunday morning worship services. All of these things that are happening. Listen, there's lots that happens in the life of a church. But if something is going to be given up, if one thing is going to be neglected, the first thing that normally is neglected, the first thing a church normally gives up on is prayer. Before a youth group shuts down, chances are people stop praying for the youth group. Long before a church ever cancels a Sunday morning service and closes its doors, chances are that the attendance at a prayer meeting had gone significantly down. It's so crucial for us as we head into 2016, as we jump into the series in Nehemiah, that we refocus our attention on prayer and on this idea of never giving up on it because giving up on prayer is the first thing we are prone to do as a church. To assume, I mean, look at all these people. Look how things are going. Look at this great staff. Look at all these programs. We don't need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray. We need to never give up. Nehemiah continued with fasting and prayer. What's true of the church is true of the individual Christian. You know, there's lots of things that individual Christians do. We attend church. We give of our tithes and offerings. We study God's word. We have fellowship with other believers. But if there's one thing that we're going to give up on first, it's prayer. Prayer is the easiest thing to give up on, but the hardest to detect. Your prayer life could be neglected for not just hours, not just days, but for weeks, and you never know it. Has it happened to you? It's happened to me. It's so easy to give up on prayer because it's so hard to detect when you have. I mean, if you don't show up for church for a couple of weeks, someone's going to call you and say, hey, we miss you. Are you okay? If you stop reading your Bible, you're going to notice that the the book's getting a little dusty and the the bookmark hasn't moved any time recently. If you stop giving of your finances, you're going to notice a, a difference in your checkbook or in your bank account. But if you stop praying, how are you going to notice? Because so much of prayer is not just us praying with other believers, it's us praying privately, like Nehemiah prays here as well. And so we are to never give up on on prayer because we believe that God hears prayer. It says that he, in verse 4, continued fasting and praying. His prayer was accompanied by 
fasting. Fasting is one of the most misunderstood spiritual disciplines. I preached on it back in June. You can find it on our website. It's part of a series called CrossFit. I did a whole message on fasting. But essentially fasting is a temporary, voluntary abstinence from food in order to focus on God. And uh, Nehemiah doesn't give any details about how he fasted. Did he, you know, fast one meal a day? Did he fast for multiple days in a row? Did he fast like Daniel from certain foods and allowing himself to eat other foods so that he could continue to have energy to work? Or did he fast completely like Esther did? Did he fast from, from all food? We're not given the details. There's a number of different ways to fast. There's a number of different people here. There's a number of different work situations and different responsibilities. But I want to encourage every single person in this church this week to practice the discipline of fasting. Either for uh, one meal or for one day or for one week. Abstaining from certain kinds of foods or from all foods to Focus and zero in your attention on prayer. We are heading into a week of prayer as a church. We want to never give up on prayer. We want to continue in prayer as we launch into this new year, this new season for us as a church. Here's what you're going to notice. Here's probably why Nehemiah fasted, and here's why fasting is so helpful. First off, you're going to notice that when you fast, you're going to have some time freed up. Time that you were normally spending, you know, going out to get food or preparing food or taking that time to eat food, that time is now prayer time. You can focus your attention on asking God and worshiping Him and spending time with Him. Another thing that you're going to learn is you're going to learn about longing. I don't know what it's like for you or what your metabolism is like, but I mean, if I go without a meal, I know it pretty soon. I mean, I can feel it in my body. I feel it all, all, all from a headache to a stomach ache. Just, I just, I, if I go without food, I am aware. But here's, here's, the, here's, here's the reason why fasting is so important. Because how long before you notice that you've been going without God? Sometimes hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks where we neglect our relationship with God. And, the, and why fasting is so important in our spiritual life, is that we take that physical hunger and we think, wow, man, I, it's only been a matter of hours since the last time I ate and I'm already longing for food. This is the kind of longing. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the kind of longing that I should be having for God and that's what God's calling us to uh, this week. It's also gonna reveal our weaknesses. It's going to free up our time. It's going to teach us about longing and it's going to reveal our weaknesses. See how short-tempered you come, you become. See how easily frustrated, how, how given you are to, to, to self-pity. Feel, sense your own frailty and weakness when, you, when something is taken away like food. Even if it's for a short period of time, it reveals what we're truly living for and longing for. And so he devoted himself to fasting and to prayer. Nehemiah never gave up on prayer. We are introduced here to the first of many prayers that we're going to see throughout the 13 chapters of this great book. But Nehemiah never gave up because he believed God heard prayer. And so we're going to study his prayer and we're going to, we're going to study what it means to pray like someone who believes that God hears prayer. So here's how Nehemiah prayed. He said in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here's the first thing. God hears prayer when my heart is worshiping. God hears prayer when my heart is worshiping. So thankful for the time of worship we've had this morning in these two services for Jameson and his team and the hard work they do in order to help us to lift our hearts in worship to Jesus Christ. And notice how he begins to pray. He prays God of heaven. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he also emphasized that God is in heaven. The Lord's prayer begins with saying, Our Father who art in heaven. That's the way that Nehemiah Nehemiah prayed. God in heaven. When we pray, we need to lift up our hearts and worship the God who is not like us. Who is other than us. Who is above and beyond us. We are here limited by time and space. And yet there is this being, this God, this creator. Who is the God of heaven. Who transcends all of that. 
And he is a God who not only sees things from a different perspective, how helpful it is to share something with a friend so they can look at it from another angle. When we share something with God, it's not just that he's looking at it from one other angle, he's looking at it from every angle. And he is the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah begins his prayer by worshiping, by declaring that God is heaven and that he's here on earth. He's learned about something that's happened a thousand miles away in Jerusalem. He's way over here in Susa. And he knows that there is a God in heaven who transcends that. That he can pray right in Susa about something that's happening in another region. And that God would hear and answer and respond. Then he says, you are great and awesome. He is the great and awesome God. He declares God's power and God's sovereignty. That he has the power and the strength to overcome it. When I uh, think about this, when I think about praying to a, a God of heaven who is great and powerful, it reminds me when I was a little kid. It reminds me of the mystery of the counter. Do you remember when you were a kid and everyone was taller than you? And everywhere you went, in your house, uh, at the bank, at the store, there was this thing called the counter. And you would look up and there was the mysterious stuff happening up there. You could hear chopping, you could hear the hand moving, but you had no idea what your mom was doing up there on the counter. You're with your dad at the bank and the pen on the chain is, is writing, but you, you, you would like to draw with the pen yourself, and, but you're up there looking at the counter, the mystery of the counter, and what prayer does is just like your mom who has, who's, and, or your dad who seemed to, when you were so young, seemed to have infinite strength, could reach down and pick you up and sit you on the counter. And now you can see. Now you can, that's what prayer does. It gives us, it helps us to see things from God's perspective. And to see how he is working and how he is moving. And it's his power and his might that enables us to do that. That we access through prayer. And then I love this. It says that God is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God has a covenant. He wants a relationship with his people. It says that he keeps steadfast love to those who love him. He has invited us to receive his love and to express love to him through obedience. That God loves us. This is the hinge of, on which the door of prayer swings. We will never pray until we believe and our hearts worship a God who loves us. It begins and ends with that. We need to fundamentally understand who God is, that he is faithful, that he is a covenant faithful God. Jesus wanted to make this clear to us. Turn to the New Testament in Luke chapter 18. Keep your hands in Nehemiah, Luke chapter 18. Find Luke 18 and verse 2. Jesus tells a parable about prayer. Luke 18, verse 2, he says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So you don't want to be friends with this guy. Okay, no fear of God, no sort of moral compass or conscience at all. He doesn't respect anybody. All he cares about is himself. Then he says in verse 3, there was a widow Uh, The the weakest person, the smallest amount of influence. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. I mean, who actually talks like that? And some people who who live that way, but this guy even, this is who I am. I don't fear God, I don't don't care about anybody. Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? What's the point of the parable? Is the point of the parable to be like the widow? To try to bother God? To wear him down? No, that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not to show that we should be like the widow. The point of the parable is to show that God is not like the judge. That 
this judge who doesn't fear God or respect man, how about coming before someone who is God and who loves man? And Jesus says, will he not give justice to his elect, his chosen ones that he has a covenant relationship with, that he has promised his steadfast love to? In chapter 18, verse 1, the reason why Jesus gives the parable is explained. Verse 1, it says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Other translations say, he told this parable so that they ought always to pray and never give up. You will give up on prayer as long as you think it's about your prayer. You will give up. As long as you think it's up to you about your particular technique or your particular discipline, you will always end up giving up. A church will always end up giving up on prayer if it just becomes about prayer and showing up to the prayer meeting and doing it because we're supposed to. But if you have a vision of who God is, who's not like this judge, but who is a loving father who has chosen us to be in relationship with him. Listen, I could stand up here and try to motivate you by giving you some sort of technique on how to pray. Oh, pray like this. And then somehow that's, listen, you'll give up. I could try to motivate you by making you feel guilty. You all watch too much television. You should pray instead of watching TV. That might work for like three days, but then you will just give up because guilt is not the proper motivator. The only motivator is that God is a God of steadfast love. And unless our hearts are worshiping him, we will always give up on prayer. Unless we truly see him the way Nehemiah saw him, as the God of heaven, who's awesome and strong and who keeps his covenant love for us, we will always give up. But we will never give up if we see who he truly is. So God hears prayer when my heart is worshiping. And so maybe your prayer this week needs to be God. God, I need a bigger vision of who you are. I need a clearer picture of how much you love me, of how much you love your people, of how great and awesome you are. Maybe that needs to be the focus of your prayer. That's where you need to begin. That God would give you a glimpse of how much he loves you and cares for you. So God hears prayer when my heart is worshiping. Jot this down as well. God hears prayer when my sin is confessed. God hears prayer when my sin is confessed. Happens all over the Bible. It happens all throughout the Psalms. Happens most notably in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah has this vision of God. As soon as he sees God, then he looks at himself and confesses his sin. He says, woe is me. I dwell among a people of unclean lips and I am a man of unclean lips. And that's exactly what happens with Nehemiah. His eyes are on God. His heart is now worshiping and now his sins are being confessed. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So he, he speaks generally on behalf of the nation, but notice how he says we, he includes himself. He knows that even though he may not have... Uh, committed the particular sins of the people in history. He knows that within his heart, his own depravity, he has the same capacity to sin in the same way. We all stumble in different ways. He knows he's no better than those kings or those priests who brought idols into the temple. He knows that he's no better than the leaders who rebelled against God. So he includes himself. Then he gets really personal at the end of verse 6. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Notice how in verse 6, you can underline this, how it says that confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. And then verse 7, we have acted corruptly against you. All sin is against God. A sin has lots of consequences. There are lots of victims of our sin. Whatever a sin uh, we have, it never just simply affects us. It, it, it reverberates into our other relationships. And, and, but sometimes we only think about that, about our sin. We think about how it affects us or how it makes us feel or the consequences on us personally. Then 
we, if we're a little less selfish than, than that, then we start thinking about other people that we've affected. But Nehemiah's focus on prayer was that they had sinned against God, that they had acted corruptly against God. In Psalm 51 verse 4, David said, against you and you only have I sinned. He knew he sinned against Bathsheba. He knew he sinned against Uriah. He knew he sinned against his, his own people. But at the end of the day, he knew that his sin was against God, that he himself had acted corruptly against God. The prodigal son, when he was preparing his speech and went to say it to his father in Luke 15, he said, I've sinned against you and against heaven. He knew that his sin, listen, true repentance, true confession of sin knows that you have sinned against a holy God. And so all biblical prayer should involve a biblical confession that comes from having a heart that's worshiping and then sins that are confessed. And maybe this week, maybe this week you need to spend some devoted time confessing your sin to God. How about starting with this, confessing our prayerlessness, Confessing the pride that lies behind our prayerlessness. Robbie Simons, one of my closest friends and and, and most influential mentors, says that a prayer is simply telling God, I need you. And we all understand that. But the flip side that Robbie talks about is that if prayer is telling God, I need you, what are we telling God when we don't pray? We're telling him, I don't need you. That's a scary thing. And that's pride, thinking that we can handle things on our own. And so praying and confessing our prayerlessness. How about confessing our our anger? Rather than believing that God is the God of heaven, rather than believing as Nehemiah did, that that God is, is, is strong and mighty and keeps covenant love, rather than believing that, thinking that we're in control and things need to go our way and then when they don't, we blow up in frustration and anger. How about confessing that? How about confessing lust and fear, these these desires or these worries or these anxieties that come upon us when we don't believe that God is a God of steadfast love? When we aren't content that he loves us, And so we go off and pursue other things through lust. Or we don't believe that God is with us and so we we shelter ourselves and try to protect ourselves and and get worried and anxious, confessing all of these things to God. And then look what he says in verse 8. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word. Here's the, here's the third point. That God hears prayer when my Bible is opened. When my Bible is open. He said, remember the word. In this short prayer that we have here, it's nine verses long. Nehemiah is going to quote the book of Deuteronomy ten times. Ten times. There, there's hardly... A sentence, hardly a clause of a sentence, hardly a word in Nehemiah's prayer that is not not from the book of Deuteronomy. And what he is doing is he is reading what God said to his people through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have a a center column reference with all of the the, uh, other verses that are being referenced in your Bible or somewhere at the bottom, it's it's just full of references to Deuteronomy, a few to Leviticus, but it's, it's, it's uncanny. What he's doing is he is reading God's word, allowing God to speak to him, and then he is speaking God's word back to God. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So God said that to Moses. We, we, we looked at how God said that to Solomon when the temple was built last week. But God said that to Moses before they entered into the promised land. They haven't crossed the Jordan yet. And God is already telling them, this land that you're about to possess will be taken from you and you will be scattered from it. Not only did God warn them about, this is how loving God is. This is how God has such a majestic and beautiful plan for his people and for our individual lives. Before they possess the land, he tells them what will happen if they disobey him. But then he also tells them how to respond when they realize they've disobeyed. Because then he goes on in verse 9, but if you return to me 
and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. This is hundreds of years before Solomon built the temple. Hundreds of years before David established Jerusalem as the capital city. God is telling Moses, there's going to be a place and I'm going to put my name there. And if you disobey me, you'll be scattered from that place. There's consequences for sin. But listen, that's not the end of the story. If you return to me, I will gather you back. The most important thing in the biblical story is how people responded when they knew they did something wrong. The most important part about your life is how you respond when you know you've done something wrong. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For some of us, it happened before breakfast. For others of us, it's coming this afternoon. For others of us, it's going to happen later on this week. You will find yourself at some point in the near future wondering, how did I ever do that? Why did I ever open my mouth and say that? Why did I ever open my computer and let my eyes see that? Why did I ever open my wallet and buy that? All of us are going to find ourselves in a situation saying, what have I done? And God knows that. And God knew that for the people before they ever went into the land. And he said, when you feel like that, when you know you've done something wrong, listen carefully. Because how you respond when you know that you've done something wrong is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is how you respond when you know you've done something wrong. Not that you avoid doing wrong things because that, in fact, is inevitable. But how you respond is absolutely crucial. And God promised that if they return to him, he will gather them. And he has promised you that if, if you return to him, he will gather you in. That is the promise that he has made. He quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. He says, even if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, this is verse 9, from there I will gather them and bring them. The uttermost parts of heaven, not that the people are up in heaven or that they're floating somehow in space. He's saying, like the farthest horizon, as far away as you can possibly imagine, God says, it's never too far. You might have gone further than you ever thought possible, but the most important thing about you is how you respond now. Will you return to him? And it may be a bumpy road getting back. It wasn't easy for the people of Judah. It was a long road of repentance. But listen, you are not too far. It is not too late. God has promised to gather you. And what we see Nehemiah doing here is he is praying with his Bible open. It wasn't a book like this. It was more like a scroll like this. And he is reading the word of God. And he is finding a precious promise in the word. A promise about the repopulation and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And he is praying that promise. And what we need to do as the people of God is to search the scriptures and to find promises from God's word. Cling to those promises. Pray those promises. If you're here today and you're struggling like I do so often, struggling with fear, worry, or anxiety, and it's almost paralyzing. People are calling you. A decision needs to be made, or you need to just get your head up off the pillow, but you're so afraid to face what may come, you, what, what may come your way that day. You need, to you need to find a promise from God's word and cling to that promise, like Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. To grab hold of that promise and to pray that promise and to pray away your fear and your worry and your anxiety. Or maybe you know you're going into a situation, you're going to be so tempted. Whatever the circumstances happen to be, and it's not a situation that you can avoid, but you're going to be tempted to find a promise in God's word, to pray that promise, like 2 Corinthians 10, 13. 
that, that when we are tempted, that God provides a way out and that no temptation will seize us that is not common to man to believe that promise and to pray that promise. Or maybe the, a, a promise like you have done something this week or this month or even something you did years and years ago and it keeps coming back to your mind and feelings of condemnation and shame and guilt are just washing over you like these waves. You feel like you're drowning in condemnation. Find a promise from God's word. A promise like Romans 8.1 that says as simple as this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This wave is not for me. This does not belong to me because I am in Christ. Finding a promise from God's word, clinging to it, praying it. That's what Nehemiah does here. Holding on to the promises of God, bringing them to him in prayer. Maybe you feel like you're under attack and someone is coming at you or some sort of spiritual force is, is in direct opposition to you. Finding a promise like Isaiah 54, 17 that says, No weapon fashioned against you shall stand. And praying and believing God's word. God hears prayer when my Bible is opened. And when our Bible is open, we're going to have a vision of who God is. We're going to, have a, we're going to hear his promises for us. And also we're going to have a, a vision for what God has done for us. You see, sometimes in our, in our Christian walk... When we confess our sin, we start to think about sinfulness as our identity, that this is who we are, that I'm always going to be this way, and that God is somehow just putting up with me and tolerating me. But God hears prayer when we understand our identity. That's the fourth aspect of Nehemiah's prayer, that God hears prayer when my identity is understood Nehemiah understands who he is and who the people of God are. In verse 10 it says, they are your servants and your people. Nehemiah knew that the people of God belonged to God. Do you know that you belong to God? God is not waiting for some improved version of you to love. He loves you right now. He doesn't just love some future version of you. He loves you now. In spite of your frailty, in spite of your sin, in spite of your fear, in spite of your insecurity, he loves you. You are one of his people. And that's what Nehemiah emphasizes. He says, they are your servants. They are your people. And then verse 10 goes on, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And any time in the Bible where you hear the word redeemed and you hear great power, strong hand, or some translations say outstretched arm, that is a summary sentence to describe the exodus. What he's describing here is the reason why they are God's people is because God rescued them from slavery. They used to be slaves and now they're free. They used to belong to Pharaoh, but now they belong to God. And God set them free through the Passover. The lamb died instead of them. And he confirmed it through the Red Sea when their enemies were conquered. And that's how Nehemiah prayed in the Old Testament, recognizing his identity as part of the people of God. And how are we on this side of the cross? In the New Testament, how are we to define our identity? Well, we understand that we were once slaves as well. Not physically like they were to Pharaoh, but we were slaves to sin. And we were slaves to death. And recognizing that through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has set us free. And that we are no longer slaves, but that we no longer belong to sin and to death. And we belong now to God. That we are his chosen people. And just like for the people of Israel on the Passover, the lamb died instead of them. We can look to the cross of Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God, who died instead of us. That idea of the people who you redeemed there in verse 10, you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Redeeming is paying a price to set a slave free. And we have been redeemed. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death on the cross was the payment to set us free from sin. And you may be here today and you don't have a healthy sense of your identity 
Maybe you're trying to define yourself or identify yourself based on how you look or, or what you do or, or who accepts you. Listen, none of that will define who you are. Your only true identity can come from being in a right relationship with the God who made you, the God of heaven. And he sent his son to die and to redeem you. Listen, you may not recognize it, but if you take a good look at your life, you are enslaved. There are things that you do that you don't want to do. There are things about you that you've been trying to change for years, but you can't. The reason is because you are the property of sin. You belong to sin. You are enslaved to sin. And sin is a horrible slave master. But Jesus has come to set you free. And he paid the penalty of death in order to do that. And you can make that decision today to take on the identity of being one of the people of God. Doesn't mean that you're perfect. Doesn't mean that you have it all together. But it means that you belong to God. And that you can pray from that perspective knowing that God, you are my father. I am your son or I am your daughter. And God, help me. And when we pray, we need to pray with our identity being understood. Sometimes we we don't pray because we think we're not worthy. We think that we need to sort of clean ourselves up a little bit. Listen, no, it's the prayer that cleans us up. We need to understand our identity. It's also important to recognize that he keeps referring to himself and the people of Israel as servants. Verse 10, they are your servants. Then verse 11, O Lord, be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants. Servants, 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 servants. You see, prayer gets really dangerous when we forget that we're servants. Because if we're not careful, rather than approaching prayer, with God as the master and us as the servant, prayer can very quickly and very subtly start to sound like we're the master and God's the servant. And when, we, when we're not focusing on having hearts that are worshiping, when we're not confessing our sin, when we don't understand about the importance of having our Bibles open and praying through our identity, the identities are going to get switched and we're going to just start praying prayers like, God, do this, take care of that. God, handle this, handle that. As if he were there somehow to just do our bidding. That is so wrong. That is, that is just a wrong approach to prayer. We need to understand that we are servants and that we're not just building our own empire. So often we can say, you know, my kingdom come and my will be done. It's supposed to be thy kingdom come and thy will be done. That's why he says at the end of verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. Notice this, who delight to fear your name, that it's about God's name. Nehemiah wanted the walls to be rebuilt, not so that he could get the credit, but that so that God's name would be feared. So we need to pray with our identity being understood. And then lastly, God hears prayer when my requests are specific. God hears prayer when my requests are specific. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm so frustrated with how vague my prayers can be. Sometimes my prayers can be so filled with generalizations that all of my prayers could be answered and I wouldn't know it. God bless this person, strengthen that, help over here. What am I actually asking for? I'm so challenged by Nehemiah. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, give success to your servant today. God, you know what I'm doing today and I need success. It's specific. Not tomorrow, not one day in the future. He says, give me success today. And then he says, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. There's a particular day and a particular meeting with a particular person. And Nehemiah will know by the end of the day whether or not God heard him. So often we pray, and oh, did God answer your prayer today? I, I, don't, I don't really know. With Nehemiah, it was going to be clear. Did it happen today? Did I, get to, did I get mercy in the sight of this man? We still don't know who this man is, but we're going to find out. He prayed a very specific prayer. God hears prayers that are specific. You don't go to the doctor's office and just say, you know what, I'm not feeling well. And the doctor's like, well, where? Uh, somewhere in this region. That's not helpful. You have to be 
specific. And our prayers need to be specific. Now, it's, he ends by saying, I was cupbearer to the king. I don't want to give too much away about next week's message, but just look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, first of all, in the month of Nisan. I don't know why Nissan isn't using this as a marketing tool. Whole month devoted to a car manufacturer, but uh, Nissan, it's another month in the Babylonian calendar, but it's important for us to notice. If you go back to verse 1, that Hanani, his brother, came back in the month of Kislev. Uh, Kislev and Nissan, that's four months apart. So when it says, I, I continued fasting and praying, that went on for four months. Four Four months of every day saying, grant me success today. Give me mercy in the eyes of this man today. He did that for four months. He asked specifically. And listen, for four months, about 120 days went by where God's answer to his prayer was no, no, no. Really what it was was not yet, not yet, not yet. But he asked specific prayers and he never gave up. But notice this. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, he said he was cupbearer to the king. And this king's name is Artaxerxes. Now, the cupbearer was the person who was to make sure that the king would not be poisoned. The cupbearer was supposed to test the food and the drink before it was given to the king. So the cupbearer was supposed to test all of that. Now, the cupbearer was one of the most influential people in the kingdom. Here's why. He's, if he cares about his own life, not the king's life, but his own life, he's going to be familiar with everyone who is handling the food and the drink from when it arrives from the field to when it's put on the king's table. And so the cupbearer was familiar with everything that was happening in the palace. Who was coming? Who was going? And he had accountability and checks and balances and it all organized. He was involved in all of the workings of the palace. One of the most influential and the most respected. He wasn't just going to be like, I don't know where this came from. Here it goes. (laughs) If I die, don't drink this, okay? That wasn't how it worked. He drank from the cup as a sign to show the king, I'm looking after you. I've got my eyes on everything that is happening here. And I'm so confident that you have not been poisoned that I'm going to drink this mice. It wasn't just some sort of blind risk every time. So he was very influential. He's very influential in the palace of a king named Artaxerxes. Now, I know we covered a lot of uh, distance last week in our, in our study of 500 years of biblical history, but I want to take you to the last stop of, on the road before we got to the book of Nehemiah. That's Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Ezra describes sort of a, a number of waves of uh, deportees or exiles who are returning to the promised land and they manage to get the temple reconstructed but there's opposition all along the way and before the wall gets rebuilt people write a letter to the king look at Ezra chapter 4 verse 11 this is a copy of the letter that they sent notice who the letter is addressed to in verse 11 to Artaxerxes the king This is the letter that the people sent saying, if this wall is rebuilt, they won't pay their taxes. They're going to become a rogue province and they're going to undermine your authority as king and damage your economy. And it's Artaxerxes who receives this letter. Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He was with the king all of the time. He would have been present when the letter was being read. And he would have been present when the king was dictating this decree In verse 21, this is the king speaking. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease. Nehemiah knows that he is the servant of God. That's his identity. God is not his servant. And he had to pray very specifically that he would have the right moment and the right time to speak to Artaxerxes. And in speaking to Artaxerxes, 
He's going to have to ask Artaxerxes to reverse a decree that he himself personally made. It's not some other king. It's not that some other government made that decision and now he's been voted in and now he can change. No, he's going to, Artaxerxes will have to go back on his own word. And here's the thing that we need to understand. That if we get serious about getting on our knees, God is going to ask us to stick out our neck. And too often we pray something like this. Oh God, I'm here in Susa. There's something over there in Jerusalem. Would you please do something that involves minimal risk for me? Send someone else. Do some other sort of way. Now would be a great time for a miracle, God, where God says, how about the miracles you? How about you stick your neck out there and lay it all out on the line? And that's what Nehemiah was going to have to do. And that's why he spent so much time praying and fasting every day. God, give me that chance. God, give me those words. And it came in the month of Nisan. And that's what, that's what we're going to study next week is Nehemiah's interaction with this king. Here's the bottom line though. Nehemiah knew that he was going to have to go before the throne of the king of Persia. And because he knew he had to go before the throne of the king of Persia, he spent lots of time before the throne of the king of heaven. And that's the amazing thing that happens for the people of God. That the more time we spend in prayer, and the more time that we devote ourselves to spending time with God and relating to this covenant love, God, loving God, That we would have courage like we never saw before. That we would have boldness. That we would have spiritual insight like we've never had before. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for us as a church. That we'd get before God's throne and that he'd transform us as we spend time with him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God. God, we thank you that we can call you Father because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you that although we were slaves to sin, you have made us alive by your spirit. Thank you for redeeming us. And God, we thank you that you have invited us to come before your throne. And God, I pray that you would give us hearts that worship. I pray that we would be people who freely confess our sin, who hold on to your promises as our Bibles are open, God, that we would understand our identity as your people and as your servants and that we would be willing, that we would be willing to be used by you. And God, we pray that we would ask you to do great things, that we would ask you to do specific things, God. And Lord, that you would work in our midst, Lord. And God, be with us as we head into this week of prayer as a church. I pray that we would be united like never before, God. That the intensity, the enthusiasm, the zeal, and the passion for you and for your glory and for your name would be like we've never seen before. And so God, only you can do that. So stir our hearts, God. Give us hearts that want to worship and praise you even right now as we respond in song. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in worship before the throne of God above. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.